Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know, not to know what you believe or why you believe it. We find ourselves in this life on a journey within this frontier, the two of us and many of you as well, where we're exploring. We're trying to figure out what our faith traditions say about the world in which we inhabit, as well as the conversations we've had that the church really hasn't had in the past between traditions, between people who see the world so differently, and we're trying to make sense of it all. And we do so, of course, knowing that our God walks with us every step along the way. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And today we're going to be talking about pastors. We're going to talk about what it means to be a pastor, what uh, the expectations are for pastors within the Christian world, well, specifically within our traditions. So because of our experiences, Ryan and I, we both grew up as being pastor's kids. We've had a unique experience that many haven't, um, especially as those who have gone in to a ministry form of one a ministry of one form or another, so that we can evaluate and examine what ministry was kind of like for our parents, our dads, but also what it's like now and the expectations that are put on us, the ways that um, people resonate with pastors, but also what we want from pastors as people on this frontier. And we thought that the best way to start would be to explore what our different traditions wanted from their pastors while we were growing up, or even now as we know them, uh, what is it like to be a pastor within the Lutheran and the Pentecostal traditions in terms of what people want from their pastors? So Ryan, would you uh, start us off and uh, tell us what what are some of the expectations of being a pastor within the Assemblies of God or the the Pentecostal tradition altogether? Yeah, keeping in mind that as in any time I talk about Pentecostals, <laughs> how uh, broad that is and how difficult that can be just because of the, you know, not just different kinds of Pentecostals, but um, Pentecostalism in general has a lot of variation church by church. Like even the Assemblies of God, for example, is um, they call themselves a voluntary cooperative fellowship rather than a denomination, which is silly because they're a denomination. <laughs> but the the idea behind that is that each church is its own autonomous thing that works together rather than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. So each church has a lot of leeway and um, power of its own in terms of how pastors work, who they hire as pastors, that kind of thing. Um, and so there is a lot of difference based on church. And also I think it's changed some since I was a kid till now, but that's probably getting ahead of myself. Um, so I can say that pastors seem to be viewed as in a way, there's definitely an element of they're the, the answer person, right? Either like they know that they're supposed to know and teach the Bible to everybody else. Um, and uh, in ways that the average person probably um, doesn't know or hasn't had access to. Now, I think there's also a part of that, though, that the pastor is, I think, 
I think pastors are kind of given this responsibility of um, leading the congregation into where the spirit is going and what the spirit is doing. Or if you like helping to usher in the presence of God at whatever they're doing, Um, you know, because as we've talked about imminence and um, the work of the spirit being a very central part of what they do. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the pastor's main roles in um, what he or she does can often be um, discerning what the spirit is doing in that particular time, place, and, and all of that, and then helping the people kind of follow into that or or helping even explain when that kind of thing happens, that, that kind of deal. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Like, I mean, there's plenty of other stuff too, but I think honestly, the biggest things are probably preaching, right? And mm-hmm. and then that I don't even know what the right word is. It's not they're not like vicars, right? They're not um, functioning in that way, and and conduit is a little too much, I think. Okay, um, that's where my mind was. Going, I mean, conduit in a sense, but not in the sense that it would not happen at all without. Like, it's not like it's I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. It's more like, um, does this work? Like a boat will drift on a river, even if nobody's steering, but somebody steering it gets you where you're going a lot. Well, a lot better, a lot quicker, more whatever, you know. So um, a lot of pastors are kind of expected to have the gift of leadership and discernment of what the spirit might be doing, saying, or wanting, um, in that sense. Okay. That's a little different because that doesn't come from training, right? Um, I mean, I think that comes a lot from heritage and history. Like that's kind of how it started. Um, so like even at like the Azusa street revival, there were people who preached and there were people who, you know, did all those things and people like William Seymour were kind of looked at as leaders, but it didn't have a pastor exactly. Um, kind of the idea of it wasn't needed then, you know. I okay. think part of what changed probably as time went went on was um, whether they want to say they're a denomination or not, they became, they started doing more things that you know uh, denominations do, and like pastors needed to be able to marry people and do funerals and um, all of that kind of stuff as well. And so, um, you know, there is that kind of authority as well. But I think, I think from my, uh, like from my memories of my childhood, it was more about that. And there is also a sense of like, the pastor does have a spiritual authority over the congregation in like leading them in vision and, um, uh, that kind of thing. Now, some places I think pastors kind of have almost uh, sole control, but that was never the case in any of the places I went. And all the churches I was at, there was a board of usually elders or something, deacons, something like that. And then how that how dynamics of power and authority worked out really vary by church. In some places, the pastor or pastors kind of run everything by fiat and, in, you know, in it in effect anyway. Mm-hmm. And in some places, the pastors probably don't have much authority at all. It really just kind of depends on different church dynamics. Hmm. 
Yeah, I know somebody in a Pentecostal church here in town, and he really doesn't have any power at all. Like, the church makes all of his decisions, including, like, during the COVID stuff, all of those decisions were made by them, and he's just like, sometimes he feels really uncomfortable because he can't say, hey, I don't really want to do this without face masks, for example. Right, right. And I remember, like... I you know, like in some polities, pastors will be like an elder, but not necessarily not the only mm-hmm. one. And they're just kind of like in Presbyterian um, stuff, for example, like the pastor is a specific kind of elder and is one of them, but is not in any way in control, theoretically. Right. And that's not the case, and except for where it is functionally, you know, um, but uh, it really depends on the church because. Um, and the pastor, right? It's not just the church. It's also, um, yeah. you can get pastors who I think take more control than they should have, right? Ideally, you've got a you've got a good balance there, but I don't know. That can be tricky um, depending on the church and the size of the church and the resources the church has and the history of that church and the church's constitution. And, I mean, all that kind of stuff because there's no standard for that. Right. It really is set by each church. Now, there are there are districts and presbyters who are supposed to help with that. And they do. But it's just a very loose, very loose thing. And so it really varies a lot. Yeah. So the two major things is teacher. Would you say expert of the scriptures? Now? Yes, I think so. I don't know if that was always the case, like, you know, 100 years ago or whatever. Um, cause in those days, the idea was really that you didn't need to be an expert because you can just read the Bible and, you know, anybody can do it kind of thing. Now, I think that it very much is kind of that classic evangelical view of pastors who are the, the Bible experts, the answer people, the whatever, I think. Okay. Yeah. So you so, have expert and you have, um, discerner. Maybe like conductors a good, uh, like music, not a train. Um, yeah. I mean, like, you know, maybe that's kind of a good metaphor for in terms of interacting with the spirit. So like, maybe that's too much control, but I don't know. But that's, I think that's closer because okay. there's this sense that, that the pastor has a gift or an ability or some kind of thing with God that enables them to, um, you know, help other people walk in that way. Like maybe, maybe as an exemplar, but not in every aspect. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. What about, um, and, and you don't have to make a category for this, but what about pastoral care? Is there an expect expectation of what pastors do for pastoral care? And could you explain what pastoral care is for your tradition too? Um, I would say there's definitely an expectation of that. And I think that's part of a pastor's job. Um, so in the, and when I was a kid, it used to be a lot of, you know, going to people's houses and visiting them. And in those days you just show up and like unannounced and like <laughs> barbarians. I don't even know why I can't even imagine <laughs> doing that. Um, but that, you know, and like hospital when people are in the hospital or, you know, weddings, funerals, that kind of thing, there is, uh, people will do like, ask pastors for counseling, um, not in the mental health sense, although some of them stray yeah, there when they do. shouldn't, you yeah. know. Um, 
but like, you know, marital counseling, that kind of thing, which again, I think has its place, although I suspect it often strays into places that they're not qualified for. But the good ones will often say, be very clear about, you know, okay, now here's where I'm going to refer you to a, an actual therapist kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a big part of pastoral care. Um, a lot of people want, like, I remember asking some of my pastors for advice, but not just, not just advice, but kind of like, how do I know what, what God's wanting here? Or like, you know, is this something that I, am I looking at this the wrong way kind of stuff? You know, um, that, that's a, I think a common role that the pastor's in of like, um, like I said, advice isn't quite the right word, but sort of, um, direction maybe not like spiritual direction in like the Catholic sense, right. Or other groups, but, um, sort of, I think it is sort of spiritual direction, but not in that way. It looks very different than, um, so what's the Catholic way? Well, I don't know a lot about it, but, um, I know, they it's like an it's not like a curriculum, but you can go to a spiritual director who helps. I think it's supposed to help you discover. I don't know about God's will for your life, but kind of like gifting, like how you're gifted and and passion and and how God might be working and that kind of stuff. But that sounds too Pentecostal for what it probably is. <laughs> I just know it exists and it's not something I know a lot about. So um, probably I would. The little bit I know about Catholics is that when it comes to that kind of stuff, they're really interested in discernment. So, yeah, I think that is a big part of it. So maybe you, it's that, how to there may be properly. something common there, but probably not in the method or the same okay. meaning, I wouldn't think. Yeah. But any of you who are spiritual directors can tell us if I'm wrong. I honestly don't know very much about it. So, um, so would you say that's a big component of what a pastor is in the in your tradition the pastoral care element yeah i think so i think so i mean it somewhat depends on the congregation but um and part of that is being you know evangelical conservative culture in america that's i think just something that's expected of pastors you know but Mm -hmm. i do think that that has been um that has been there for it looked, I'm sure it looked different, but it's that idea has probably always been there in some way or another. Okay. So you've got teaching, you've got a uh, spiritual conduction, <laughs> conducting, um, and pastoral care. Yeah. And, you know, I think maybe another word that's similar is um, equipping, right? The idea mm-hmm. that like the pastor is, is, is his or her job is to equip people to do God's work, whatever that may be. So that could be helping them discover what gifts they have. It could be um, nurturing talents and gifts, like giving them ways to exercise them in church, either in leadership or teaching or music or whatever it might be. Um, I think that's a big part of it too, at least supposedly. Like, I I just mean that's supposed to be part of it where, um, you know, the idea that the pastor is, is there to equip, they'd say, equip the saints, you know, for God's plans i guess yeah yeah so okay um now what about for you all because i know i think i can think of some places that are similar but i i'm already also thinking about some places that are pretty different so how would you describe it in in you know your world 
Yeah, I think I'll make a similar disclaimer, although it'd be a little different. Um, as with you, it will vary greatly sometimes, depending on the congregation you're a part of. And um, I think it depends on two elements. One would be theological conservatism versus progressivism. I think that there are different expectations for those. There's also the strain of Lutheran and evangelical. Things that are more evangelical will probably look a lot more like what it is to be a pastor in one of your traditions, whereas Lutherans, they'll have a, well, your congregations, Lutherans will have a different field to that. And of course, we could go and bore everybody to death of parsing that all out, but I won't. Um, it's just a disclaimer to say there's a lot more complexity here, but I think there are probably three major, uh, well, two major things that are expected from Lutheran pastors, and then one that I want to touch on when it comes to uh, the more evangelical bent of it, because we have, pro frankly, more of those in, in my church body than other Lutheran church bodies would. So the first is one that uh, Ryan will roll his eyes to. Any Lutheran who hears it will know. It's it's word and sacrament. We are all about our word and sacrament. Um, Lutherans have crafted a, an expertise around word and sacrament for pastors um, you can't do, certainly can't do sacraments without a pastor, at least in the traditional way. Um, and preaching is also kind of carved out for pastors. And um, you mean, you mean like presiding at communion? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sacraments, communion and baptism. Those are mm -hmm. our two sacraments. Uh, baptism has like uh, special circumstances. And so with a void of a pastor, it's really not that big of a deal for Lutherans to do it. Most Lutherans don't know that, so they won't do it unless there's a pastor around. Communion is almost taboo. You can't do it without a pastor. I say almost? <laughs> well, yeah. Most congregations, it'd be certainly taboo. Some, with certain circumstances, I think they'd be okay with it. Yeah, um, yeah a little insider baseball. Uh, when we bless the wine, we have to save that separately than the other wine. And so... What some congregations will do is they will have blessed wafers and wine to save and give, you know, allow somebody else to uh, serve communion that way. So that's how they kind of get away. Are you sure you're it. not Catholics? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it feels like uh, that. Uh, yeah. So um, word and sacrament is the big thing. All Lutheran pastors within my church body, I think every Lutheran pastor in America, certainly, that's what they're trained to do, uh, to discern the word, to be able to teach it, certainly to preach it, but also to um, apply it, kind of, and then perform the sacraments. Um, so that's a big one. The second one is pastoral care. That's our big second one. So pastoral care ranges from funerals, to weddings, to hospital visits, house visits, uh, inactive visits, and blah, blah, blah. Um, this one wildly differentiates depending on where you are in the country and what congregation you have. Um, some pastors will think that their sole job is to be pastoral care advocates, so they won't do anything but preach and teach and do sacraments and then go and visit everybody. That's all they'll ever do. 
Hmm. Um, and you know, anyone who's a Lutheran listening to this, you know, I'm sure one pastor by name that you could say is that way. Um, other areas, it is, uh, some pastors will just say, I'll do funerals, but I won't do weddings or anything else. Um, so, so it, it wildly differs why would they on where not, you are. Why would they not do weddings? Um, well, there's an old joke. Weddings are worse than funerals because um, there's just so much well, I mean, it's wrapped true. up in a wedding. I know my dad used to hate doing weddings because it was always, you know, how weddings yeah. are. <laughs> so what those pastors typically do is they'll have people get married by the state and then they'll have some sort of small ceremony to bless it. I swear that's that's very surprising to me because these are the same people who are all about the sacred institution of marriage as instituted by God, but go be married by the justice of the yeah. peace. Well, weird. It, it wouldn't be those folks that would do that, I would yeah, say. Um, Luther, actually, this was a hot conversation in seminary. Luther, that's what he said. He said, go get married by the state and then come here and we'll, we'll bless your union. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people are saying, why aren't we doing that now? Um, why haven't we been doing that? <laughs> because marriage is a state issue rather than a church issue. Well, and that's especially kind of how it is now, you know, but that's a, that's a separate, that's a whole a separate thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it can easily turn into one of these conversations about a whole bunch of stuff, but there are people who just refuse to do anything other than funerals because funerals are kind of a special area. Even funeral directors hate doing funerals um, in terms of teaching or not teaching um, the preaching, quote unquote, the message. They don't like Mm -hmm. doing that part. They like having pastors or faith leaders do that uh, or even community leaders um, because they're they're honestly not trained to do that. I remember um, when somebody died who didn't have it, like in our small town, um, they would just kind of call around until they found yeah. a pastor who would do it. Yeah. And my dad ended up doing a lot of those, um, especially ones that seemed to be, you know, hard. Like he did the one for the kid who died and the mm-hmm. guy who, yeah. who died from suicide and that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, he did one yeah. at a baseball diamond one time because it was a strange strange experience and they even sang amazing grace and they pushed the guy's coffin around the bases while singing grace will lead me home and i don't know how he didn't lose it laughing but yeah he's a better man than me that's all i can <laughs> say anyway yeah so funerals are kind of a niche for or niche for pastors and faith leaders it's kind of hard to say no to a funeral especially when you just you're called to this kind of service you're going to do it usually um so pastoral care is there. I would say while there is great variance, my experience within the congregation I'm part of, plus also talking with a bunch of pastors as I'm dealing with this experience, is that there's an expectation that the pastor, I, I'm going to say it pejoratively, um, the pastor is expected to be the friend of everybody in the congregation. Um, I say that because I think it sets the terms of what people are asking of the pastor to be there not only when you're having a surgery that's life-threatening or you've gotten into an accident or this, that, or the other, but that you're to visit somebody in the hospital every day, several times a day. You're to go to their homes uh, several times during the year. You're supposed to do this, that, and the other. And um, 
that's just a general expectation. Some pastors lean into that really well. They love it. Others like myself do not love it. Mm-hmm. Um, we in the Lutheran church, and this will be the last thing I can say and we can go to questions, but we in the Lutheran church, we tie communion to our visits. Mm. And so that changes the dynamic, I think, than what you would have in, in the evangelical church and the certainly Pentecostal. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be weird or bad if a pastor took communion to somebody at their home, but I mean, it, it's not not in the same way or of the same <clears throat> importance, I don't think. Yeah, and we we do we have like, of course, difference in the expectations, but if somebody's going into a surgery or has an accident. You want to bring communion just in case. If you're going to see somebody who's homebound, who can't leave their home, you bring communion. Um, everything else depends on the pastor. Most choose to bring communion and kind of make that something that they do. Um, so, yeah, for us, those are the two big ones. I'd say word and sacrament and communion. Uh, well, word and sacrament, sorry, and pastoral care. Mm-hmm. The third one that's kind of like yours, I would say, is. Um, hotly debated and really dynamic, depending on where you go, is the role of the pastor as organizational leader or Mm -hmm. institutional leader. Boy, that just, that's different based off whatever congregation you're part of. Some congregations, they don't want a pastor to do anything, but marry and bury him is what we say. So um, cradle to grave ministry means you baptize them, you marry them when they want to be married, then you bury them. And in between, you just do Sunday ministry. Some churches do that. Other churches will want to be a a mega church. (laughs) Just put it as blankly as that. And so they'll want a pastor that leads them um, almost uh, in, well, certainly in ways that we're not trained to lead in the seminary. Um, But the organizational piece is always something a pastor considers as they're looking at congregations is like, so what do you want me to do as the leader of the institution? Do you just want me to take care of your staff and take care of the programs? Or do you want to really institute some change and get some things done here? Or do you want none of that? And you just want somebody to come here and preach and preside for you? Um, Yeah. So it would be uncommon then for a pastor to say, uh, set the the budget for the next year. Yeah. Yeah. I think where you see that happening the most would be in the small parishes where there's a couple families and that's it. Necessity, I imagine. Out of necessity, yep. Yeah. And the the stakes are very low in that those kinds of situations because the pastor's just doing kind of a household budget to Mm -hmm. make sure the building's still around and they're able to do that. But uh, the larger you get the less likely that's going to be the case. See, it's interesting because like one of the churches, now it was a smaller church, but the church that I was actually a pastor at. And one of the things I did was I didn't create the budgets, but I, you know, I kept track of, um, you know, I paid bills. I, I uh, kept track of people's giving so that we could give them the all important tax receipts and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then the lead pastor and I, and the rest of the team would also be involved, but would set, would create the whole budget for, mm. you know, um, it was more him than me because I don't really do that, know much about that, but I'm just saying like, and it would be approved by other people. It's not like, but right. 
in essence, it was almost kind of here's what you're here's what we're doing. Here's the changes we're making from last year. You know, we spent this much, but we didn't use th that kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, and I don't again, that's going to vary by church. But I remember like um, I remember my dad being very much part of those decisions and committees that would do that sort of thing, whether it was trustees or deacons or whoever. Um, but, you know, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm part of those, of course. So as someone who spent a fair amount of time adjacent to you folks, <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that I've um, wondered about because I, I've, yeah, I guess I've wondered about is there seems to be a very high view of the pastor's spiritual authority, mm -hmm. um, whether that's in terms of sacramentally, sure, certainly in terms of preaching and teaching, but also kind of like, um, it seems like just the whole, even like the answer man thing, but even that seems to be in a spiritual sense too, right? Like here's the doctrine. My job is to know the correct doctrine and teach the correct doctrine. And I'm the one who can do that the best, right? Is that, is that an accurate? Certainly. Yeah. yeah. So we our training around word and sacrament is around theology and sacrament to be as um, show my cards as much as I can. Um, so a lot of people perceive the pastor as not just the expert, but kind of like the telos, if you will, um, which is a Greek word to say um, what the end goal of spiritual life should look like. Oh, gosh, that sounds hard to live up to. Yeah, um, certainly doctrinally that's the case. So, um, you know, I have not had any arguments with people about doctrine. Um, I not know. really. It's almost like the average church person doesn't actually think about it that much. <laughs> well, and we have a system that makes it so pastors are the answer to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's just education. You take somebody educated in something and somebody who's not, the educated person is going to be able to destroy them. It's There's no... There's no way around that. You know, the proper thing to do as a pastor is to help teach in those moments, not destroy them and say how foolish they are. Um, or to have humility would even be better and say, hey, maybe there's something to what this person's saying. Imagine that. But the way that it works out is Lutheran pastors are called first and foremost. I would resist being an expert because we're, um, unless you put practice uh, into the expertise. So it's not just knowledge, even though it's heavily knowledge. It's also what's the best practice. And that's why I got into a little bit of the application. So the number one question I get doctrinally is not, you know, the category, if you will, is not what does this mean in the Bible or what does this mean when you say it? The number one question I get is, I'm thinking about doing this. Is this okay? Yeah. And well, that way, it's kind of similar then, because I think yeah. that okay. happens a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. So, pastors for us, we are, so we have a, in our church body, we have a nickname for this kind of pastor. It's Herr Pastor. So, Herr is the German word for Mr. Um, or Lord, Lord Mr. Pastor. pastor. 
I like that. Mr. Mr. Pastor, <laughs> Lord Pastor, H-E-R-R. Of course, it's good German. The caricature of the Herr Pastor is an overbearing spiritual pastor, a man, of course, who uh, makes his will align with God's in so far that he, no, that's the other way around. Make God's will align with his. Wow. So that what he says is the case. Um of course, these these gentlemen are typically spiritual abusers. Uh, they are fiefdom mm-hmm. uh, lords. Uh, we have our fair bit of those. Um, and it's kind of the old way of doing things because in our tradition, we have had a great distance between those who are educated and those who are not for the majority of our history because of what happens when you think you know more than somebody. There's a lot of arrogance, a lot of privilege, a lot of saying, I know better. And it lends itself to this overbearing guy who's like, if you don't do it my way, you can't. I'll give you one quick example. Somebody in our area, he um, was running into trouble with this, a couple who wanted to get married. And they weren't doing what he wanted them to do, which was like tons and tons of counseling with him, uh, even signing something saying they agree with this, that, and the other about doctrine and so on and so forth. And the couple was like, I I don't want to be a part of that. Like, well, yeah, I get it. (laughs) Anyway, so we have those kinds of folks there who will do some crazy stuff when it comes to pastoral care and Hmm. All right. Can I point out a similarity that I think I'm seeing between the yeah. two? It seems to me, it seems to be a very individual thing in that um, partly theologically, um, partly I think church culture in the sense of what's expected of pastors and things that pastors have to be concerned about, about not playing favorites and that kind of deal. But, but even to the sense of like in a lot of churches in the last, like as I've been growing up, a lot of the churches um, that I've been a part of, there's been a move towards multiple pastors and each pastor focusing on specific things. So there's mm-hmm. a pastor and a youth pastor and a music pastor and a children's pastor. And uh, I was at one church that had an administrative pastor, which by the way, that was great. Cause he did I all of that. the, he loved that stuff that most of us hate. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway. And he did other things too, but I'm just saying like, even that though, while the pastor works as a team, it's a very compartmentalized thing, right? Like it's almost as if the pastor is an island of sorts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of being a lead, and some of that may be inherent to leadership, but I think it seems like uh, pastors have it even more so. And I don't know if that's because of the spiritual element to it or or what, but um, it seems like in both of our cases, the the pastor um, is often very much kind of a sole figure, even if there are other, you know, boards or elders or whatever involved. Um, the role of pastor seems to be very much a one person thing. Yeah, I, I would say like 100 percent. I don't think anybody in my congregation or rather anyone in most congregations that can really identify uh, with empathy. I mean, they can, but they can't. You know, they can't fully identify with what a pastor goes through. 
Um, even even other pastors have a hard time with that. Uh, if you have pastors in your congregation, which does happen, um, it's really hard to find people who understand what you're going through, understand w- the challenges that are there, understand all the difficulties of what they balance. I've shared some examples of this. Like um, this is just a common leadership thing, I think, but you know, it's novel to people. It shouldn't be. And I get so frustrated that it is, but it's novel to people that if you're coming to me with one opinion, I've got other people coming to me with the exact opposite. opinion. No, 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 pastor. Everybody agrees with me. (laughs) They just are afraid to say it. Yeah. And what a pastor, and I would think a leader, but since we're talking about pastors, what they, what they need more than just a blanket opinion. We'll we'll take blanket opinions, um, but we're gonna because it's such an individual job. We have the task of interpreting what those opinions mean and and how to proceed with them. The best kind of people in my congregation are people who ask me good questions. I'll give you an example. We've had some struggles with talking about racism at my church and. Um, Somebody who's just been kind of outside, but observing and interested of what's going on here, he, he asked me, he said, so do you think people are upset because they're racist or do you think they're upset because they haven't seen the totality of what it means to be a racial justice advocate? Hmm. Um, and we don't need to go into the answer necessarily, but the question is much more interesting than Pastor, I don't like when you say X, Y, Z. Um, that's a diamond dozen opinion. I hear that every single day. <laughs> yeah. um, to have a question like that made me really think, huh, uh, I don't think necessarily that they're racist outside of the you know systematic racist way. And even if I were to say that, then it doesn't really help the conversation. It's like, so what's really going on here? And it let me adjust and think about things. And those folks are folks that really get the individual nature of what it is to be a pastor, that you got a lot to deal with, a lot to figure out. And um, yeah, so anyway, that's where I come from. That's uh, some of my experiences, but how have you seen the individual nature? You said you noticed that in the between. Uh, so where are you coming from with that? Um, I think... One of the ways I noticed it is how lonely it can be to be a pastor. Now, you you touched on that a little bit in the sense of like um, even nobody like other pastors kind of understand. But even then, it's it's different in different contexts. But like um, there's this idea that pastors shouldn't have friends in the congregation because if they do, they're playing favorites. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, But. You know, so I guess pastors just don't need friendship is kind of kind of the effect of that. Um, there's an idea that like um, uh, because of pastors' special role, whatever that means, um, that they're in some ways set apart. Like I remember when I was a pastor, some people, one person would joke about me having a red phone to God because I would have something, and I was like, "Yeah, uh, I really don't." 
you got the same access I do, right? Like you all do. That's the point. That's Jesus. Jesus means that we all have the same access, at least yeah. in our world. Maybe not for everybody, but in the in in our churches, uh, you can call on the phone just as easily as I can. You know, <laughs> um, but even that idea, though, is like people kind of hold you up to standards that. Um, are impossible in the sense that like, you just can't, you know, I think you said something like um, supposed to model how the, like the end of Christian life is kind of realized in, in a pastor. And it's like, man, pastors are figuring out all this shit too. Um, (laughs) You know, and uh, it, it puts a lot of pressure on pastors to be and to do things they just aren't and can't be or do. You know, and and I yeah. think, um, and then, and then of course that had a lot of effects on their families, which you know you and I have talked about before, um, because the same kind of things get applied there too, just in a little bit of a different way. Um, so yeah, I think part of that individual part is it, it's very isolating too, um, and. So it's isolating, which I think is really hard on the pastor, right? He or she has to know everything, know exactly what God wants all the time, give people (laughs) advice about what this is what God wants for your life and what you should do in any given situation based on, quote, the Bible or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, The pastor has to equip people or, you know, preside, whatever it is. But the pastor also has to live in some kind of morally blameless uh, mm-hmm. paragon kind of way that isn't isn't possible. I mean, it almost feels like pastors are kind of um, not human in a sense, right? I don't want to say demigods, that's too much, but there's almost this idea <laughs> of like pastors are, well, they're human, but they're a different class, right? Like yeah. they're, now, maybe in some systems there is something to this and the idea that pastors function in a priestly way that is different. But in in my world that I came from, and I think in yours too, that's not supposed to be the case. Right. Um, you know, the priesthood of all believers kind of idea is what they would talk about in, in, in uh, all the churches I went to. Um, you know, Jesus means you don't need that. Jesus is the priest. You don't need me to do that for you kind right. of thing. Yeah. Um, well, we have a tricky thing in our theology that makes it harder for us to get away from that, which is, and I resist this, to, to everybody because it's so toxic. We are supposed to be, you mentioned that word, vicar. We are mm-hmm. vicars of Christ as Lutheran pastors, which means that we are supposed to be the stand-in for Christ. Period. I now, mean, there's, there's a no responsibility to have. Yeah. What a terrible. Re- now, there is an element of that. I would say the ritual element is really important. Like, I'll give you a quick example. When I do a funeral, I'm the last person to leave the hearse when it when the body gets loaded into the hearse. I'm the first person to be there when the hearse or the coffin comes out, and I am the last person to officially leave the casket. Mm-hmm. That's that's a, a ritual symbol of Jesus is always there. And I think that a pastor 
has that duty to do stuff like that. Sure. And like, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not arguing anything yet, but I'm not saying that like <laughs> there's anything wrong with the idea of a past, like a pastor should live in a way that is an example. And, and, and in certain ways, yes, no, you know, there is something to leadership. That's a responsibility and all of that. But um, it seems to go much further than that. It does, usually. Yeah. And usually that's what ends up happening with, Gosh, all of us. So the pastor is supposed to be the best church member. They're supposed to be the the, the person who saves the organization. That's mm-hmm. a big conversation right now in American Christianity. They're supposed to have all the answers for that because after all, they're standing for Jesus and they do have a red phone line in, in the way that people think about it. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you throw in on top of that, the moral life. Um like pastors can't make mistakes. Right. Um, pastors can't say, you know, curse words, <laughs> just simple stuff like that. Fuck shit. Mm-hmm. Can't say that because um, Jesus wouldn't swear. And yeah, I think he would. Actually, um, <laughs> I, I'm not convinced, especially these days. But um, yeah, yeah, no, that yeah. idea very much. Yeah. Like yeah. it even was like when I was a kid, one of, like this was somewhat of a of a distinct and sort of crazy Pentecostal fundamentalist thing. But like the reason that we could never go trick or treating, like I think we talked about this a long time ago, was because Halloween is bad and the devil and evil mm-hmm. and right. And because yeah. we're my dad was the pastor, yeah. we couldn't do those kinds of things, right? Um, Even though everyone in your church was. Yes, I think so. I think every yeah. single other person did. Now, my church when I was a kid was a special case. That wouldn't be the case everywhere, but yes. Right. Um, yeah. But the the point was that because there was something different about us, you know. Now, whether we wanted it that way or not, I certainly <laughs> didn't. But yeah. um, but that that I was grew up different. that way too. That was mm-hmm. my way. We didn't watch stuff like The Simpsons. Uh-huh. We didn't watch. Uh, a lot of TV shows. We certainly didn't participate in Halloween or some of the other stuff there. I don't think it had the evangelical flair that yours experience probably did, but um, it but was the all underlying because stuff is yeah, same. it's underlying. Yeah, he was still trying to be the model for his parishioners. Yeah. Well, and I think it's that part of it to me is really tragic for two reasons. One, it's an impossible thing for any pastor to live up to, right? So just think about practically speaking, we tell a pastor that he or she cannot have friends. And then we wonder why they don't, why they have a hard time, you know, caring for people, right? Or like in the Pentecost, in the conservative evangelical world, they're real big about moral uprightness, right? So pastors in the Assemblies of God can be removed from churches for like watching pornography, for example. And yet we say they can't have friends and, you know, they can't do all of these things that help with things like loneliness and frustration and isolation. And then we wonder, gee, why do they do these other things that are, quote, immoral, which is not me commenting on porn. I'm just saying that's an example of like, we're really setting pastors up to, as they see it, fail. Um, You know, and uh, we have these impossible standards for them. And then we're like, well, gee, I I never would have expected this. And it's like, well, why not? (laughs) You know, turns out pastors really are people just like you. Um, And so I think that's really tough. It's impossible for pastors to live up to that. 
And that I think also can really undermine the pastor themselves in that it, it's real hard, at least for me, and I was never the lead pastor anywhere, but it was hard for me to feel confident in leading other people because I constantly felt like I wasn't meeting these impossible mm. standards of um, not so much morality, but like um, that uh, closeness to God that I was supposedly, that I supposedly had as compared to everybody else, you know? I mean, it's like, no, there were days when I wasn't even sure about this whole faith thing, but obviously there was no space for that because I was a pastor, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 And so you've got the side of building this facade and it falls down and the toll that does to pastors, but you also have the other side that we've seen way too often, which is some people lean into it and become monsters. Mm -hmm. They lean into it and they're like, Oh, so I'm supposed to be this guy that is the <laughs> Ryan's favorite fa- phrase, the professional truth sayer. Oh, um, <laughs> I think it was professional speaker sayer of truth or something yeah. like that. Um, and they become what we've seen in a lot of uh, far right evangelical circles, mm-hmm. which is they can say no wrong if something proves them incorrect, either it was misinterpreted or. Um, that it's reevaluated and set in a new way and nobody bats an eye that, Hey, this guy's full of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the one extreme. The other extreme, of course, we've seen is that people are put into this position where they don't think they deserve, or, or sorry, they don't think they, that others deserve basic humanity. And so you've got, uh, in the Catholic church, you've got people who abuse, uh, boys mm-hmm. and, and children. You've got, uh, sexual abuse and so forth in lots of key evangelical circles in, in the time that we were growing up. It's still happening today. More and um, more every day, it seems like. What is it? Hillsong's Church out in New York City? That, that oh, I have Well, I, I know there was a lot of stuff with the some of the, so, quote, celebrity churches. Um, that one guy whose name is Justin Bieber's pastor. Yeah, um, that's the one. I can't remember his name. That was but... sexual misconduct, right? Yeah, he was having an affair and and yeah, and then like I mean whether it's him or Mark Driscoll and sexually harassing staff yeah, or right. um I mean like that's the kind of thing is like it gives pastors the ability if they're, you know, monsters at the worst to do things like sexual harassment or abuse, embezzling, um you name mm-hmm. it, to maybe not as bad in the sense of legally and morally, but well, in some ways, just as bad, but like dictatorial um, control of the church mm-hmm. and using God to manipulate people. Yeah. And being able to get away with spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, manipulation, whatever, because, you know, you have the like, who's going to hold you accountable, right. even in places where there are theoretically structures for accountability. In my experience, that can be difficult um that's not the case everywhere i know that daniel uh no there was a pastor in his denomination where she was actually removed from her church because of how she abused staff and all kinds of stuff and so i mean like those things happen but by and large in my experience the one of the problems with this view of pastors is that 
It puts so much responsibility on the pastor, either to the point of making it harder for the pastor to minister effectively or attracting and keeping people who should not be pastors right. at all, yeah. you know, and uh, it's tragic because it should not be that way, you know. Um, so with this clusterfuck the, the way that it is, what should it be like? Well, see, that's one of the things I've been wondering about a lot, because I think the other thing which will lead into this answer is that the other problem, I think, is that it pretty much whatever your system, generally speaking, it puts one voice in the center of everything. And even with a, quote, good pastor, right? Even, and I don't mean perfect, I just mean a pastor who is trying his or her best to, to be the best pastor and help and, you know, all the things we did, we would want in a, in a pastor. That's still only one voice. So in a lot of cases, that's a white male heterosexual voice, right? But even where it's not, that's still only one voice. That's mm -hmm. one perspective. That's one um, culture, one way of looking at the world, one understanding of scripture, you know, all of those things. And I think what I've been wondering is what might pastoral leadership look like in if that was not the central conceit, right? If our goal was, if anyone's goal was, how can we be a pastor in a way that's not limited to the an, an individual? And I know there are things, like I said, pastoral staff and pastoral teams and those kind of things, which are supposed to be part of that. But in my experience anyway, in essence, while that helps somewhat, it doesn't really address the kind of thing. If only because as people, we tend to um, work and surround ourselves with people just like us, mm -hmm. right? I mean, how many pastoral teams in conservative churches are white men? Right. Most of them, you know? Right. So that's the kind of thing is like, what what I've been wondering is what might it look like if like is there a way to lead as a pastor as one voice of many uh, uh, like in partnership rather than like is there a, is there a way to be a partner leader rather than a leader you know does that make sense yeah. mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. I don't know by the way the answer is I would like to think so but I wonder how that would work, you know? But maybe that's the problem. Maybe we run right to issues of practicality or pragmatic stuff that we just say, well, we can't do that because X, Y, and Z wouldn't happen. And we don't spend any time on the, yeah, but we, but, but like the way it is can't be the way we leave it. So let's, yeah. you know, like let's figure the pragmatic stuff out, but we always run to that to say why we can't change things from the way that they are. Yeah. Um, I like that a lot. Uh, I think that having a decentralized leadership and um, especially when it comes to decisions being made and culture being created, that's really necessary. Um, the responsibility piece is a little tricky there because it's so easy to say, well, if we're going to give you all this power, then you're going to have all the responsibility. And if a team has all the res all the decision making, then where's the responsibility fall? I, th yeah. I think that what that highlights for me is more that, and I'm not saying this to like stop this conversation, but it's highlighting that we've 
created a way of doing church that is hierarchical, Mm -hmm. even though we wanted to get away from the hierarchy of the Catholic Church as Protestants. Right. And we've insisted that that is necessary. It may, it looks radically different in different situations in some ways, Mm -hmm. in some ways, but I really think in a lot of ways, it's not that different. Um, We just have a, we have a more localized hierarchy or we have a, um, you know, other ways of doing it. And I'm not saying there's no difference. There is. And some of that I think is good and whatever, but I'm not sure we've really changed it as much as we think we have. Um, and, you know, like, I've been thinking about this a lot because Nate and I, well, Nate introduced me to this podcast, which I like and I hate listening to it because it's really <laughs> challenging and 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 hard to listen to, which is why I should, why we listen to it because, yeah. you know, and it's, um, this season of it anyway is about white supremacy and, and it's called, what's it called? Reclaiming my, reclaiming theology. my theology. Yeah. And so it's about reclaiming we'll theology. It. Yeah, it's, it's great. She talks very quickly, but that's because she has so many good things to say. Yeah. Um, but it's, and so like I was listening to one and it was talking about virtue signaling, which I don't want to get into here right now, but I, I left being there like, man, like how do I, as a white male, function and leadership given the problems in the church with like the rampant systemic problems of white supremacy, misogyny, homophobia, whatever. Right. And, uh, my first response was, well, maybe I just shouldn't. And then that didn't feel quite right. Right. Like (laughs) it seems to me that the response of, well, I'm going to sit on my hands is not what anybody wants or is going to be helpful. Um, and so that's what's as I was talking to my pastor about this and, and she and I were talking about some of it, it was trying to figure out, well, what might that look like um, to have uh, different structures, you know, and I wonder, is it as simple as. Well, no, it's not as simple as, but I feel like a first step is. Looking for that diversity of of voices. Um, having as many voices at the table as possible. And maybe we need to like expand our view of leadership, right? Like maybe, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud here. Maybe it's still fine and right for a pastor to preach and, you know, preside over sacraments or whatever. But there are other ways that we can put people in leadership that are not like us. Also, maybe it's great for other people to preach and preside over sacraments. I don't know. Um, But I'm just saying like, uh, okay, I'm going to say it is good, but that's just me. But, um, you know, so like, I wonder, is that like, maybe that's a place to start of like, so, you know, how do I make sure that there are non-white voices at the table and, and women and men and trans people and, um, you know, maybe even like children and, yeah. you know, young people and old people mm-hmm. and, and like all of this kind of stuff, because, like we said earlier, I think we miss out on so much when we restrict it to one man or woman or whoever, whatever their characteristics may be. Something that occurred to me, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the connection quite well based off of what you said, but it does apply, I promise. Um, So let me give you an image that really helped me understand something in my own life that I deal with, which is anxiety. And then I'll get to how we can maybe change things. So have you ever noticed, uh, this happens on, um, (laughs) you know, those interview shows after a a reality show, they bring all the guests Uh, on reunions or whatever. And 
usually it, it turns into some sort of fight between them all because there's been some sort of beef there and so because forth. Because they create drama because we all like yeah. it, even though we shouldn't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's actually kind of predictable what happens in those things because of how people react to the anxiety they feel. So what happens is that there's this fight that happens. And as a fight happens, especially when you know people, you don't want the fight to keep going because it's anxious to watch. It creates discomfort. And so some people decide, usually it's people who do not go internal, they're people who are external, and they decide we're going to take care of this anxiety by, you know, inserting our opinion or if they're very uh, unhealthy, trying to take over the conversation and shut it down or this, that or the other. And you can actually watch what happens is that this anxiety that started with a fight starts to go all over the place in an unhealthy way. Right. Mm-hmm. It goes all over the place because we- everyone's feeling anxious and they want it to stop. It turns into Jerry Springer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was an extreme example, but yes. Well, the healthy way that this happens within families is that you knowingly take on other people's anxiety and you do that through empathy, right? So you say, um, it must feel very, uh, well, you could do anything empathy. Let's say a child, because I have children, a child's angry because they're not getting their way and say, yeah, it must feel pretty terrible that you can't get your way here. And, you know, continue on and you share empathy. Does it, is it a magic weapon? No, but it's a way that you absorb that anxiety and share it with everybody and it disperses. Mm-hmm. What if the same thing's true with power? Um, and I thought about this when it came to what you were saying about, um, you know, having more people there to, that's how I was thinking of it in terms of power, of sharing that power, sharing that activity, those logs, of course, getting more voices on the table that are diverse. uh, So that way, when we're working together, we can all come to a place and recognize that power isn't getting your way, it's getting our way together. Right. Um, And maybe that's part of what needs to happen is that there needs to be like this juggling of power, not in the unhealthy way, where we're all trying to vie for our way because I'm right, or this, that, or the other. And we all have seen how that happens in churches. It happens all the time. Um, and what ends up happening, of course, is the church is unhealthy. It's it's less connected as a result because, yeah, the person in power won that argument, but that doesn't matter much. It's going to destroy the relationships involved in some way or another. Um, maybe it's about... Uh, taking that power that we usually fight over that can destroy us and kind of dispersing it amongst all of us, Mm -hmm. whether that is people who are different as we actively build a more diverse team, a more diverse environment, or even as a first step with many of us in primarily white congregations is just dispersing them and getting them used to the idea that white supremacy as one guy having the answers is not the way that this works so that we can move forward to do more of what we want to do in terms of bringing in more voices and more opinions. Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't think that what we're talking about has to be, and we say goodbye to pastors as we know them completely, right? Um, I mean, I, I think one thing that a pastor does need to do that would always be the case is there is a way in which the pastor, I think, is is responsible for um, safeguarding their 
the people under their care from harm. And that could be any number of things. Um, I used to think it was theology, but now I say only if that's theology being used to hurt people, you know, not so much is it right or wrong, but like we, it would be the pastor's job to ensure that nobody is, is, you know, uh, using the Bible to, uh, and, uh, prop up white supremacy, for example. Right. Um, but like, you know, that would still be the case. And I, and I think honestly, having that more diverse crowd or group or whatever it ends up being would probably help that be more effective in some ways, because nobody can see or know everything. And, and, People are going to, however, the best pastor in the world is going to say or do something that hurts somebody sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think having more people to kind of tell you, hey, you know, this doesn't work because or you need to address this because or you don't. I know you don't know this, but you did X, Y or Z. Would I think be more healthy than just expecting one person to just know all that stuff and do it (laughs) on their own? Right. Um, but it like I mean, it doesn't mean everybody has to preach or that every because most people aren't gonna do it. <laughs> they don't want to, yeah. But it does mean like, oh, how can I find like who's what's a voice that I can find? Like in I guess what I'm trying to say is that one of the things I like, at least ideally, about the way pastors are viewed in the world I came from was this idea of equipping, right? Equipping other people to lead other people, um, finding ways to help foster gifts that God has given people in a way so that they can use them for the benefit of everybody else, right? That's kind of the the body of Christ idea. Um, And I think that would be a big component of what we're talking about here. Um, it, like I said, it doesn't mean that everybody's a pastor in the traditional sense, but it does, I think, mean that pastors need to cede some of the authority they've either been given or taken for themselves. But I hope in a way that would be, I think in a way that would be healthier, safer, and um, better for the entire church, you know? Yeah. It's like yeah, if you I, needed, if you had some kind of specialized disease, which would you rather have? Would you rather have one surgeon or would you rather, you know, and it affects multiple places in your body. I'd like a heart surgeon and, a, you know, all the other kinds of surgeons too, to make sure we're getting the best thing that we can mm-hmm. do. And it's like maybe a similar principle. Yeah, I think so. And I think that fits right in line with, you, you keep saying equipper, that comes from Ephesians 4. Yeah. And Ephesians 4 actually lays out five roles within the church. Um, and I really, I'm starting to really, I'm somebody who hates formulas. So I will always find a way to break apart any formula. <laughs> but as close as I can get to somebody who's very uncomfortable with them, I like the idea that the church has these five folks or do you um, mean pastor, prophet, teacher, apostle? What's the other one? Evangelist. Evangelist, yeah. Yeah, those five as leaders because, uh, you know, a pastor is going to be a lot, a shepherd, someone who cares about people just because they're good human beings, um, are going to be different than people who are prophets that mm-hmm. notice the problems that, that that are bringing everybody down and need to be destroyed. That's mm-hmm. me, by the way. Or um, <laughs> what's that look? <laughs> I'm just—it's you just declared yourself a prophet, which I'm not <laughs> arguing with. I just—it's good for you. <laughs> yeah. 
or uh, the teacher who's mm -hmm. able to outline things. And that's also me. I will able to talk about things. I talked about the pastor or shepherd because I have someone on staff that's just wonderful. He always asks how people are doing and spend some time with them. Um, and maybe it's as simple as recognizing that God does things differently through each of those people and they're all equally needed. Um, and I think what we've done um, in, in the Ephesians 4, to just continue with that, is we flatten all those gifts into one thing and expected our pastor to be that one thing, which yeah. is, you know, Jesus or lesser than Jesus. Yeah. And I think we also need to realize, though, that this this kind of change can't be done solely by pastors, right? I think it has it's going to need a lot of buy-in from everybody else. Yes. And I do think that that could be a difficult thing because one of the things is that I think ev when I was a pastor and every pastor I've ever talked to is it can be very frustrating because we say or do all these things to try and help or change things or whatever it is and we get nowhere with people cuz they kind of like wasn't that your job or that sounds yeah. hard. I'm just going to let somebody else do it. Right. So <clears throat> I think for it to change there, it can't be all pastor focused. Cause I mean, that's the problem we're seeing anyway, yeah, that's the problem. but I do think it would, it will be a challenge to figure out how to change culture in that respect because, well, it's easy to let somebody else take care of things. I just want to go there and sit there and not do much maybe um yeah. or whatever it is and so it is going to take that and that will be a, a hard sell in some cases <laughs> but maybe it's not something that happens tomorrow and you one of the jobs of pastors is to start finding ways to to do that and it may take a while and that's okay i think the important part is is effort. I know, crazy, right? But like, like it comes up a lot for me and we talk about it a lot of like, well, then yeah. let's give it a try. Yeah. See what happens. We'll redirect and scrap the whole thing if we need to. Yeah. The apathy thing is what I think needs to change on, on uh, maybe apathy or complacency, I think are the double-edged mm. sword here that, and that can be on the pastor or the non-pastor's mm -hmm. part, you know? We get used to things how they are. And, you know, sometimes it's easier to just do things myself. And I think part of that is going to take pastors being willing to let things not go, quote, perfectly, mm -hmm. which is often code for not the way I want it to go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that could be hard. That could be hard. But that's something there that is uh, like one of the deeper insights I've had over my first four years is that. A pastor needs to, uh, what's the right verb? Needs to facilitate absence. Hmm. That there are some things that just need to not be done either by the pastor so that people can learn that there's a hole that needs to be filled, that there need there, there's a problem that needs to be solved, whatever kind of thing that needs to happen. Um, because I have talked, I'm one of those pastors, as Ryan knows, I've talked until I'm blue in the face, like, hey, come on, you talk about, you want to be different, you want to grow, you want to do this, that, and the other, and then you get bupkis, and you're like, well, what the fuck, people? I mean, mm -hmm. what, what do you want from me? I'm telling you exactly, and you're agreeing with me in some way. It's not that I'm getting pushback or even gentle gossip against me. It's, it's that you're just not doing anything. 
Um, and that's really, really quite challenging. So a, a good example of this is that when I first got there uh, to this congregation, this is true for every pastor, so it doesn't matter what this example is because every pastor will say it's happened to them. They will say, they will get there and people will have all these wonderful ideas that will solve the problems in the church that they're about to serve. And pastor, we should really do this. And when you hear we should really, that should be like a big red flag because usually, at least in my experience, and I would say most pastors, what that means is you should do I say, this. Pastor, you should do this. And yeah. you're not going to get any support to get it done. But you'll sure hear about when it's not right. Yeah. So yeah. I got there and one of the first things, because they were talking about reaching young families. They didn't fucking care about young families. They just wanted more people in the pew and they realized that getting old people wasn't going to happen. So um, they kept on saying, some of them, Pastor, you should really, we should really have a, a young adult Bible study. And they would come up with these great scenarios. That's going to bring them in in droves. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the silly thing. But I instantly learned the best reaction, best response to that. It's like, yes, let's do it. Um, how are you going to start? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, oh, no, not me. Not me. We sh I'm not, I can't. I'm too busy. I or, just have the vision for I don't it know is how what they would it. say in, in, in my world, you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I just have the vision for it. I'm more of a vision person kind of stuff. You know? And it's like, yeah, okay, fuck okay. you. Um, you know, kind of, uh, well, if God gave you the vision, then I bet God gave you some, some ways to try it out, too. Yeah, right. You know, of course, that would require God having given you right this, exactly, but, but yeah. you know that's something else I know <laughs> wow that's yeah definitely a different flavor than what we have it's always we should because uh some sort of logical thing and yeah we should um why hasn't it been done oh well because no one wants to do it so well, it like, sounds okay. like you want to do it <laughs> so do it <laughs> uh yeah. yeah, so uh, the absence there, that was a way to communicate absence, I think. But the better way to communicate absence is just sometimes I've learned not to say something because if I don't say anything, then people draw their own conclusions and they start to learn the things that I actually want them to learn, mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes to doing something. If they say we should do something um, or more away from that context when we're actually in the midst of uh, focusing on what can we do when they look to me and I'm silent and there's not the work being done from my side, then they start to figure out, Oh, okay, well maybe I have to fill in the gaps. Yes, you do. Because I do not work 90 hours a week. That's not my job. I knew um, there was something wrong with you. <laughs> Don't you know what pastors are supposed to do? Uh, yeah. yeah, so maybe there's a delicate balance of bal of absence and um, maybe that's part of that whole power thing of mm -hmm. whenever people ask you to take up power, you say no or you just you know don't answer because you're doing it through absence and come into a place where, yeah, we're working together instead of <laughs> putting it all on the pastor or, yeah, and not or, putting it all on the pastor. So I imagine this will be a tougher, I don't want to say tougher sell, but this is going to be a harder change in some places than others. Or maybe I should say 
aspects of this are going to be hard in one place and easier in another. And it's probably going to be hard everywhere, some ways the same and some different, right? So in a community, for example, that has a very high sacramental theology, I don't know if the way to start, I'm going to say the way to start is probably not by insisting that someone other than the pastor <laughs> do communion, for example. Right. But the challenge for the pastor there is then, okay, so what, in terms of starting this, where can I um, put other voices in? Um, maybe that's teaching, depending on where you are. Maybe it's um, some kind of leadership. You know, maybe it's elders. I don't know, whatever it is. Um, and in others, like, it may be more difficult to, um, you know, it may be the pastor looks out at the congregation and says, gee, I don't know who to, when I look at these people, and I don't mean that in a these people kind of way, but it's just everybody has different gifts. So leadership is not for everybody, at least not in every sense, right? I think everybody mm -hmm. can be a leader in some way, but I think it's that of like, Maybe the challenge is take that person who you think cannot do anything because you've decided that in your mind and find something that they can do, um, you know, as a way to really train yourself that there is no such thing as a person who is dead weight. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Like, I know, I don't think either you or I are saying, oh, this is easy. Just do it tomorrow. But um, I do think that the fact that it may take a long time, that it'll be hard, that we may make some, probably will make some mistakes along the way. It doesn't, that can't be like the pragmatic considerations cannot be a reason to not try it, to not change some of these things anymore, because that's, I think you look around at the mess we've got, and this is not the only factor, but it's a big contributing factor, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting because we've talked about as a culture, let's say as critics of, um, what we've inherited. I think I've heard a lot of conversation about how pastors deal with diversity, for example, um, deal with the other is how I would say that anybody who's different than their themselves or their constituency, their congregation. And that's a really important conversation because we haven't had that one mm -hmm. for, you know, <laughs> ever. ever. Yeah. Um, but I think what this does, this is not just as important, but it it has its place in the conversation of the reform of the church, the change of the church, however you want to talk about that. Because if all we do, as wonderful as it would be, if all we do is include more people, then what what my fear would be is that, well, that just sets more people up to be hurt by the systems of leadership of power dynamics that the pastor has and teaching a culture that accepts those things. And that's not good, right? Then, then all we do is we create another other, which is just as problematic. Um, so I think this is important along with a conversation that I haven't heard very much of, which is how can we change things in such a way within our culture as a church or as a congregation or even within the leadership of an individual pastor that we can move towards something that prohibits further otheringness or further violence to people who would be deemed outside of the power structures? And that's why this is going to be difficult because it is more than just 
hey, why don't we include more people in the system we already have? It mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. we include people who weren't part of our system so that we can better change the system to prevent this stuff from happening ever again. Mm -hmm. And that requires a radical way of thinking about things that we we just are not quite ready for. Yeah. It also creates a mechanism for addressing those things when they inevitably happen still, right? right. So, you know, syst systemic problems don't go away through a year of work or, or a committee or whatever it is. But when you do these kind of things, the, the goal is change, you know, over time and, and that kind of thing. And, and so then when these mistakes are made or when the same kind of patterns repeat themselves, hopefully there's now a better mechanism in place to recognize it sooner and address it better. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and rather than pour, pouring all of that on one person's shoulders, it hopefully makes it easier to, to do. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as I was hearing what you were saying about there is a role the pastor plays, uh, equipper seems to be the best word for that because we're equipping the church for this change. We're equipping the church and that requires us to model it. But, you know, modeling looks different than modeling mm -hmm. means not being the, the paradigm, but it means showing people what it looks like to give up power, what it looks like to embrace the difficulties, what it means to um, seek change that will be scary, but very important. And all along the way, you're equipping people to do this through the different roles or functions that they have as the church, rather than seeing them as functions of the pastor and you are extensions of the pastor, which mm. is a really kind dangerous of, thing. Well, kind of the same problem, just looks a little yeah, different, exactly. right? Yeah, you're not, we're not talking about mini-me's here, right? We're not talking about making clones of of yourself. We're talking about... I hate myself. I, mean, I wouldn't want more of me. Well, there's a lot in that statement. <laughs> it was more of a joke. A, yeah. A Jerry Seinfeld He's yeah. like, I wouldn't date somebody like me. I hate me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly the opposite of what we're getting at here. Yeah. Is I have a voice and perspective that is important. So does everybody else. And it's finding that and creating space and not just space, but enabling that in, in, in whatever way that I can do that. And, you know, right now pastors have a kind of privilege. And so let's use it then for good things. Um, mm -hmm. That's, I think, how you combat that sort of thing. Right. And, and we'll figure out the details and we'll readjust and retool and, you know, repent and retry and whatever words you want to use as we go. But, um, you know, the fear of doing something wrong is also not a good reason to not change things. Yeah. We're not going to just do less damage by keeping the status quo. Cause the In status fact, quo is doing it's doing shit tons of damage on yeah. its own has been and continues to do so. Right. Um, regardless of how quote good, you, you as a pastor may be, or a pastor may be, and I'm not even saying it's all their fault. It's like right. you said, yeah. these are system issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't have to accept that this, that the system is just how it is. And that's always how it has to be. It may never be perfect. In fact, it probably won't ever be perfect, but it can be better. 
And so let's let's go for that. Let's make it better. We'll start small or maybe we'll start large. I don't know. But the fact that the system will never be perfect is also not an excuse to try or to not try and make it better. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's probably an okay place to to stop for today. There's, I'm sure, more that can be said. And I hope that it, any of you who are listening, I hope it challenges, challenges you some, both if you're a pastor or if you're not, because um, it is kind of have to be a partnership thing, that what we're talking about. And I would just encourage all of us, myself included, to look for ways to um, make the kind of changes that need to be made. And, um, you know, we can ask God to help us with that. I really do think God will show us next steps. I doubt God will give us the bird's eye view and the here's the next 10 year plan of exactly what this will look like at the end. But I think that God will help us with next steps. I think God will give us direction, if nothing else. You know, this door's open, that one's closed kind of stuff. Um, So let's give it a shot. You know, can we can can we just try it and see what happens. Um, Because I think it will be a good thing. I think it will be a learning experience. I think it will be life-giving. And um, yeah, we can trust God that it will work out in the end because God works things out in the end, however God does that. So um, whatever the church looks like, however the pastor's role changes, um i really do think and i think nate thinks this too but i always get to say it it will be okay (laughs) and um it's gonna be okay um and that god i promise will take care of us 